Welcome to The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. Uh, it's my pleasure today to be uh, in conversation with a really good friend, someone that um, has made it a point uh, to come with just about every single book to be at Books and Books, um, if not for the release, at least right when the book is, right before the book is published. And that's the great James Grappando. Uh, we're going to be speaking to James about his new book, The Girl in the Glass Box. We're going to be talking about a lot of different things as well. And then at the end, we're going to talk a little bit about books in general and about some of the books that Jim is reading these days. And I'll talk about a few of the books that I'm reading as well. James, welcome to Literary Life. I'm so glad to be here. Always a warm welcome at Books and Books and surrounded by books and great people. This is our 37th year of being in business. And Books and Books is nothing more than the people who come and the people who support the store, as well as the people who work here and the writers who are writing you know, here in Miami. And I feel like we've grown up together. We definitely have grown up together. You know, my first book, The Pardon, had its debut here at Books and Books. And it'll be 25 years this year. It's the 25th anniversary. Unbelievable. 1994 is when The Pardon came out. And uh, just last week, I was here with the 28th novel in 25 years, The Girl in the Glass Box. And I feel like you and I have grown up in this sense because there was every bit as good a crowd 25 years later, but there were more people there I didn't know than I did know, <laughs> which was not the case that, for the first novel. That's was, always the great testament was, yeah. as to how many people are here are not family or friends, right? Exactly. <laughs> well, that, well, that is true. You've developed an amazing readership here in Miami, not only just in Miami, but of course, everywhere. You're published by HarperCollins. And, you know, we were talking earlier, and you're a bit of an anomaly in, in this... Um, in this business, you've had the same publisher, the same agent, and you're just now changing to a new editor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I am a picture of monogamy <laughs> in, the, in the publishing world. You know, I um, started uh, with The Pardon with HarperCollins, uh, and that book sold actually to an editor named Rick Horgan, but he left shortly thereafter. And so I, I uh, was matched up with Carolyn Marino, right. who is a terrific editor. She did Tony Hillerman. She's done Lisa Scottolini. She's done a number of very big authors, um, but always made me feel like a big author too. So, which, you know, even when I was the small fry in there, but now I'm the old man in the publishing house. Literally, I'm, I just visited HarperCollins headquarters. They've moved downtown, you know, they used to be right. in Midtown. Um, but they've moved to this great old building down on, uh, in the Wall Street area. And uh, so, uh, yeah, so it's, it feels like home going there after 25 years, the same publisher. I was represented by Artie Pine and Richard Pine. Artie passed away. Artie got his start, you know, doing publicity work for George Burns to give you, around, <laughs> give you an idea how right. long he'd been around. So Artie passed away about 2002, but I've stayed with Richard uh, Pine. It's a it's a legendary. Uh, it's Inkwell. Inkwell, right? yeah. It's a know. legendary um, uh, agency. Yeah, they really are. You know, and a lot of people. Um, you know, it was Richard who really came up with the idea for the TV ads that uh, James Patterson ran. On I wasn't the, on aware the Today of that. Show. Yeah, it was uh, when a book called came along. Came a spider. Right. Um, was just catching traction. They came up with this idea of the ten second or fifteen second ads. It said something like, 
you don't have to wait for the next Silence of the Lambs. It's here. And it was kind of campy. It was really just this right. spider, you know, kind of dangling over a house. Um, and I can remember going to Artie and Richard's office um, on West 57th Street shortly after that. And there was this enormous, you know, this was before the days when you could print and, you know, amazing graphics in your own house. But there was a, a, a like a five foot by seven foot uh, recreation of the New York Times bestseller list with Along Came a Spider at number one. And I said to Richard, I didn't know it hit number one. And he said, it hasn't. Jim Patterson had created those images and sent them to his editor and to his agent and said, this is where we're going. <laughs> and I don't think he's ever left. <laughs> that no, spot, you know, that's amazing. Then. No, so, he hasn't. Yeah. So I've been in good hands, you know, and uh, uh, it was Carolyn Marino uh, at HarperCollins, my editor, who I've sang goodbye to literally two weeks ago after 23, she 23 years. She's going into sort of a semi, I don't think she'll ever retire. Right. Um, but uh, she and uh, the publisher collective, you know, t- together agreed that um, Ann Hillerman and I, who she was still editing, sh- should have mm-hmm. an editor in the house um, who goes into work every day and right. so forth. So, right. and we all agreed with that, and that made sense. So, um, but I just spoke to Jonathan Berman. Uh, on Friday, and he said, "If you want to run something by Carolyn, you go right ahead." You know, so, That's great. so I still have that. So, well, the team at Harper Collins is fantastic and always has been. Yeah. In fact, I think it's just uh, today we have our Harper Collins rep here in town, and we are Eric. Oh I'm my sure God, you know. Eric! Yes, I'm sure he'll stop by to say you know, say hello Eric, a little bit. Eric was the guy who was really out there hawking the pardon 25 years ago. He's yeah. been around that long. He's he's one of he looks a little better than I do, but he's no, you both the exercise great. he gets. So. No, but yeah. no, no. It's see what people I think don't really realize about the world that we're in is that it's a relatively small world, really, yeah. Yeah. and that <clears throat> that writers and booksellers and publishers. Uh, you know, we all have our interests aligned in the same way. Right. And it's a small world in which it's filled with people, you know, like you, who I consider to be one of the nicest guys around and someone that I love going and putting your book in someone's hand because I know it'll be something that they enjoy. Well, I think that's an important point because it, yes, it is a small world, but it is not a closed club. Um, You know, everyone I've, I've really dealt with in this industry has been very welcoming and very willing to help. Um, And I try to follow that model too. I'm reading, you know, I just, I don't know why I can't say no, but you know, I'm reading um, an aspiring author script and it's not even published yet. Um, You know, but you know, he seemed like a nice guy and his story seemed interesting. And so, you know, you do these things and, you know, I don't know, pay it forward or whatever you want to call it. No, that's exactly right. I mean, I think part of, you know, you've been doing it a little while. I've been doing it a while. Part of our Part of our mission is to make sure that there's a next generation of writers and readers. Right. In fact. God, that's so important, you know, and, and that's, that's, you know, one of the things that disturbs me about the changes, right, is, is that um, publishers, I think, always have had that sense of responsibility that they should be bringing along new talent and not just kind of, you know, um, pushing the blockbuster. Um, and I hope that never goes away, but... Um, well, yeah. you, we never, you know, we're in such a strange and unusual time right yeah. now. But, you know, every all of this talk reminds me of a story, well, I would say maybe 30 years ago or so, we had Elmore Leonard in the story. Oh, my gosh. Before he sort of blew up right. the way he blew up. Yeah. 
And afterwards we would go, and he used to come to, I think he lived in Fort Lauderdale at the time, and he would come to give readings at the store. And afterwards there was a little ice cream place around the corner. It was called La Glacier. I'll never forget Oh, I that. remember La Glacier. And yeah. so we would go, and he was telling me this story about why he changed publishing houses. He was at the time at Arbor House. Okay. And he said, I finished a novel, and I didn't know who to turn it into. <laughs> and oh he called God. up he called up the number at Arbor House and said, Hi, this is Elmore Leonard. Uh, and the switchboard operator didn't know who he was uh, uh, and they didn't know where to send him. He says, It's time to change publishers. Right. right, right. So it's really wonderful to be at a place where they know your name. <laughs> Fantastic. You know, well, you know, actually I've I've kind of had a, a, the opposite experience, actually, which um, you know, my mother still breaks my life into two chapters. And that is, you know, I was a, a full-time lawyer before I started writing. Um, and so my mother, who's now 91 and doing well, sharp as a tack, um, still breaks my life into two chapters. And that is when Jimmy had a job <laughs> and, and when he went <laughs> off and did the writing thing, you know. But the truth is that law firm that I was, which was the most prestigious law firm in the city of Miami right. at the time, shortly after I left, blew up um, and ceased to exist. And here I am now. And you're still writing. Years, I'm still writing, still the same lead character, Jack Switek, still the same publisher, still the same agent, until, as we talked about, so the let's, same So let's go back to, you know, because, you know, I, when you and I have talked about this. I went to law school for two years myself. I left to get into this business. You actually became a practicing lawyer, a yep. very successful one. And let's go back to the beginning that many years ago, 25, 26, 27 years ago, when you started thinking about writing. Now, were you a, a writer in college, in high school? When did the writing bug first hit you? The writing bug hit me at about age 11. You know, I started writing fiction. Um, and I would put all of my friends into the stories so that they would sit and listen to me read my stories to them because they wouldn't, couldn't wait to get to the part where now, they, were, they were in the story. So Was this here in Miami? This was growing up in a small town in Illinois in called Illinois. Antioch, Illinois. Yes, when you know, there really wasn't much to do in the wintertime except sit into, you know, in the ice shack and get into you know, all kinds of mischief. Um, so I would rake up these stories. Um, and going through high school, in high school I had a wonderful English teacher. I, I probably, every author you've spoken to has somewhere in their past this wonderful English teacher. Mine was Jim Corrigan at Antioch Community High School. And uh, he is one of these people. Uh, well, the, the first paper I turned into him was a C minus. It was the highest grade in the class. Oh. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> I think I had a few of those teachers yeah. too. So, but he was, he was just really terrific. And then in college, um, I, uh, I, I took the um, College of Arts and Sciences honors program. It was six Wait, of us. At the University it, of Illinois? At the University of Florida. Oh, you went to, how I went did to you University end up? Florida. My father retired when oh, I graduated high school. Here? And everybody moved to Florida. Wow. So there was a, the uh, head of the English department, Sid Homan, um, who was pretty eccentric, very much. I mean, his favorite character to play uh, was uh, Shakespeare's Othello. Uh, you know, so, you know, so uh, um, uh, Iago, he wanted to play the, I'm sorry, the character he wanted to play was always the villain. So that gives you an insight into, into how his, his psychology was. Right. Um, but uh, Sid would um, make us write um, a paper a week, which we all eagerly did. There was only six of us. But then randomly, or maybe not so randomly, he would um, pick one paper to read out loud to the entire class and we would all 
you know, like vultures pick away at it. Um, and I have to say that that experience of being in that class for two years with Sid and hearing somebody, there's nothing like hearing somebody stumble over your crappy sentence. Right. <laughs> to make you, make you want to be a better right, writer, exactly. you know? And, um, and I still that, do that to this day. I will you read, read aloud. I will read my, especially yeah. certain dialogue, I will read aloud. Um, and I have said to thank for that. Yeah. Um, that, that, that moment of embarrassment that really was a blessing. Um, and so... But well, I have I would, to say, you're so good with dialogue in your work. Thank you I for mean, that. I it must but come from that. I yeah, suppose. you know, also it's just, um, I think it's just being a, a good listener. I think, I always tell aspiring writers that, um, you know, the internet is definitely your friend, but you are never going to get an ear for dialogue or an ear for a place by, you know, Googling things. Right. You've got to go and you've got to hear how people talk and the expressions they use and what, you know, little idiosyncrasies you can pick up. Um, but, uh, and, and I think that's probably the thing that sets a good writer apart from a great writer is dialogue, yeah. right? You know, it's just, um, and it takes a certain amount of confidence before you can get there. Um, that and comedy, I think are the two hottest, hardest things. They are very it's, difficult. It's, yeah. it's hard to be funny, you know, because, <laughs> you know, a lot of the jokes that you will tell will fit automatically you know, alienate 50% of your audience. So right. to be universally humorous, you know, we have Dave Barry down here who seems to have mastered that. And uh, Carl here, has done And Carl Hyacin. But um, it's, it's an, it's, it's an it's underrated a, talent. It's it, very hard to do that. So, so did you have a novel in the drawer after you left Florida, after you left the University of so, Florida? So, no. I, I really never thought I would become a writer. Um, you know, I, I had wanted to be a... My parents took me on a, and this is like, I give parents this advice too. It's a great thing. We had five children in our growing up, but they would always do um, one trip where it was just one kid, right? So, and I just did that with my daughter this weekend. She turned 14. We took her to New York City. You know, we took her to see, she loves Billy Joel. She saw Billy Joel in Madison Square Garden. We saw To Kill a Mockingbird, so forth. But the important point I'm making there is that what my parents says, they took me to um, Springfield, Illinois, to see Lincoln's base. Uh, oh, office. Oh, Lincoln. Yes, yes. I so, think a basketball hall of fame. <laughs> no, no, that's in That's Ohio, in Springfield, Ma Massachusetts. Massachusetts, Massachusetts right. yeah. So Springfield, Illinois, course, is where Lincoln Abraham had his Lincoln. law office. And, right. like, and so that was like when I was 12. And I'm like, God, you know, so I, I got off in this, I want to be a lawyer track with that. Um, and was pretty happy being a lawyer. 12 Were years your parents in, in the professions? Were they? My father was a. Actually, maybe I'm, I'm destined to be a writer. My my mother was um, a teacher and a writer. She wrote one of the leading nursing textbooks in wow. the country. Wow. Was was in print for 27, 28 years. Wow. Um, and my father, well, I joke about this. My father was a stripper. But that, you, <laughs> I think I know where you're going. Yes, with this. it's 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 an old, it's a it's a lost art. It's a trade uh, from right. the printing business where right. he used to be. Uh, so my mother was a writer. My father was a printer, is what I say. So maybe was, you know writing was in the, in the cards. But they were very very happy that I became a lawyer. Um, you know, hence my mother's you know two chapters in, of in my life, right? You know, because I had I. Um, but if you go back in time, you think of. Um, the hottest show, or what do you think? The hottest, the most uh, popular television drama of the late 80s. 
think of it. Was it L.A. Law? L.A. Law, exactly. Yeah, had to be. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, the hottest book in the country was Scott Turow's Presumed Innocent. Absolutely. Um, and you had and, just started, you were just starting your practice at that point? And uh, at that point, I was just three, four years into my practice. And either... Well, Eric, you also had John Grisham just starting. Grisham was starting, but he didn't really hit it till about, what was that, 90, 91 yeah. with the firm. Um, but the legal the, thriller was quite... The thing. And they were active, publishers and agents were actively looking for the next Grisham, right. the next Tarot. And uh, either arrogantly or naively, I decided <laughs> I can do that um, and spent four years, nights and weekends. And there was a particular, wasn't there a particular case that from real life that sort of spurred this to some extent? Well, that's, there's, there's two incidents like that. One was I had done a lot of work for, um, uh, with, with the sugar industry in Florida. And they were always um, in the news about, you know, the battle of, of environmentalists versus agriculture in our Florida Everglades. And there was actually a lot of very, there was a great book. I can't remember the name of the guy who wrote it, though. It was excerpted in the New Yorker about the horrible conditions under which sugarcane cutters worked. Yeah, I um, remember that. And um, anyway, so my first attempt was four years, nights and weekends on a murder mystery involving sugarcane cutting. Um, never got published, but I did, you know, go sort of and cannibalize a lot of that novel in a book called Cain and Abe um, about four or five years ago. So it came back a little bit, but, um, and then, uh, that's how I met though was, was Artie Pine. I sent him that script. I sent it to two people. I sent it to um, Robert Ludlum's agent, um, who uh, basically told me it was terminally obese. Uh, it was 266,000 words. Uh, your average first novel is about, should be about 90,000 words. And I'm thinking, oh, no problem, trilogy. You know, <laughs> we, we, we got this covered. Uh, no, and he just said, no, you, you, you know, consider this your four-year degree in creative <laughs> writing and start again. Artie told me the same thing, but a little bit more diplomatically. He told me it needs a shave and a haircut. You know, so but that that's, was Artie's personality, better. though, was this very positive. He even wrote a book himself called When a Door Closes, a Window Opens. And that's mm. the way he lived his life. You know, everything right. was positive. And I don't think after he he did shop that first book, though. And, you know, it re and it was he tried hard. But about August of 92, and you remember we had a visitor in South Florida named Andrew in yes, August of 92. Of and, you know, my fiance's house was totally destroyed. Her parents' house was totally destroyed in the hurricane. Her grandmother's house was destroyed. Mm. They were all living with me in a two-bedroom townhouse with no electricity, oh no air conditioning. And that was about the time I got the last rejection letter from Artie saying, you know, I'm sorry, Jim, I knocked on every door in New York City, but you know, you, right. You know, nobody wants your book. So, um, I thought I was going to go back to practicing law at that point, but, and there's not many people I think in this world other than Artie who could have called me. He let me stew about it for three, four weeks and then called me and said, literally, you know, Jim, you got the most encouraging rejection letters I've ever seen. <laughs> oh, that's great. He seemed like such a positive, good he force. Was great, that's great. But he had a lot. He made such that sense. kind of mentor. He did. And he just said, you know, you had something that was broken, this 
260,000 word monster in a box. Just, you know, start over, fresh idea, page one, chapter one, and I think you'll have a completely different. Think about that though. I just spent four years, yeah, nights and weekends, working 50 hours a week as a lawyer, you know, and somehow Artie was able to convince me, yeah, that's a great idea. <laughs> I'll try again, <laughs> you know, but I did and uh, wrote the pardon and, uh, you know, the idea just came to me, I think partly because of, I followed that old adage, write what you know. Right. And right out of law school, I had done a lot of death penalty work and I had often wondered, you know, and when those, this was back in the day when, um, Florida and Georgia, which was covered by the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. I worked for the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals to a, a judge there. And Florida and Georgia were executing more than death row inmates, than, including Texas, uh, yeah. including Texas. Um, so it was, uh, you know, every three, four days, we would have this drill of, this was before, you know, everything was on, you know, uh, everything was digital. You know, would have the, the, the appellate records, the habeas right. corpus proceedings, everything. You know, this stack of bankers' boxes show up in the office at 7 p.m. and think, well, at 7 a.m. they're scheduled for an execution. And, and I can remember leaving and thinking, I'm just glad it's the judge's decision, right? You know, what if we get this wrong? There's like, we can't, oops, what are we going right. to say? You know, I mean, uh, and uh, and so that that feeling was, you know, in me. You know, even though I was, I had moved away from that kind of work. I was doing a completely a commercial practice. I came up with this idea of a man on death row, hours away from execution for a murder he may not have committed, and um, uh, had my own little case of mistaken identity, which I've told many times here at that's, your bookstore. I know that was so interesting. And, uh, they were and, jogging and. Stopped. It was a ca- total case of mistaken identity, you know, and the police officer thought that uh, they were looking for a peeping Tom in the neighborhood. Right. And somehow he decided I wasn't the guy. Right. You know, and something about the way I looked, something right. about the way I answered his questions. But, you know, that could have gone a completely different direction. Absolutely. Right. You know, um, but that feeling of being innocent and being stopped by the police for something that even if I, I had ultimately proved my innocence, right, uh, I would forever have been you labeled. You've been scarred by that. Absolutely. So, so, so it's, it was so, so real. So the idea of then turning this idea into a legal thriller and having Zwitek be involved, yeah. uh, where did that come? Who did you pattern that after, if anyone? You know, I, honestly, I think that was just a, a matter of uh, what all of us thriller writers do. Right, is that you take this kernel of truth and you take it to um, a higher level of whether a high concept level of playing the what if game. What if, uh, you know, you start with the what if, what if an innocent man were arrested? What if he were actually convicted? What if he was innocent? And finally, when I started writing, I got to the point where what if the governor knew he was innocent? Right. And that gave me chills. Right. That somebody would, rather than admit they were wrong, um, let someone die knowing that they well, were that, innocent. Well, yeah, it's interesting you say that because I think that's a hallmark of a lot of your writing. I mean, yeah. you're, 
you have a complexity to your work that doesn't exist in a lot of other legal thrillers. In other words, you know, there are a lot of twists and turns, right. but there's also a depth to it where, um, where you really do, uh, you, you take the reader down roads that they didn't think they necessarily were going to go. And the other thing that you do, which I, I've always appreciated, is you take a lot of things, not out of the news, but things that are currently, you know, part of the zeitgeist, things that people are thinking about. Right, right. And yeah. so they're topical in that yep. sense as well. So there's another reason to be able to read it as well. I remember the book you wrote about our aquifers. Oh my gosh! I forget. Yeah, yeah. I forget the title. It's called of that. "Got the Look." Got the Look. That, yeah. And you, you know, I was, yeah. if you come to and you have to, those of you listening, wherever you are, go to your find out when uh, Jim Grapando is coming to your local bookseller, and you have to go to his events because they are multimedia productions. Uh, <laughs> Jim does slide presentations. He tells you you know, about the book, where it came from, and this, that, and the other. And that I remember very, very well, that one. It's, you know, that was not far from the University of Florida, uh, the setting for that book. Um, it's called Ginny Springs. And there is a real-life place called the Devil's Ear um, in Florida's aquifer. Um, and I don't, the first time I was close to that place was we were, tubing down the Itchituckney River, right. which is crystal clear yeah, it's water. Yeah. And it's 72 degrees, which is pretty cold, you know, especially cold for, you know, a Florida boy. Of uh, you know, so, um, but I can remember floating down that river and you can see the bottom perfectly. It's like, it's, it's just glass. And, but I noticed these bubbles percolating up through the bed of the river. And I'm like, what the heck is that? And the, somebody who was with said, Oh, those are the cave divers. I know. That's you know they're blowing their you know their right. spent oxygen out of their tanks. And I'm like, imagine you've got to be kidding me. There's somebody in the pitch dark down there right. in these caverns, um, and so I kind of, that was about my tenth novel. But I always knew I was going to write something about because it, just think who anybody who would do that would make an interesting character. I got right? claustrophobic so, so. just thinking about it. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> Because you know, yeah. yeah. we, we who live here don't think of anyone diving in the aquifers. No. I mean, that's where we drink no. our water. But um, let's, let's talk about the new one, which yeah. The Girl in the Glass Box, because yeah. that too is something that could have been ripped out of the headlines as well. Tell me a little bit about it and, and where it came from. Right. So um, people don't realize, you know, Jack Switek is the protagonist in The Girl in the Glass Box. Um, it, it's, uh, I think it's number 15 in the series. Um, you don't have to worry. You don't have to read all 15 to enjoy this book. I <laughs> they're they're all standalone. Just, they, they, so. they really do stand alone. Um, but people don't realize, you know, Jack, um, his history, uh, you know, is uh, Jack's mother was Cuban uh, and uh, was a, a Pedro Pan uh, survivor, uh, came to South Florida. But she died in childbirth. So Jack never knew his mother, but he's half Hispanic. For those um, who don't know what Pedro Pan is, it was a group of kids who came over after Castro took power, they came over, they were brought over by the Catholic uh, uh, diocese, and they came without their parents. Right, right. And uh, that's why they were Which is just, Pedro you know, it was a very painful thing, decision for a lot of parents to make, to send their children over and to, to, so they could get out before the dictatorship would change took everything. Hold. Um, and so, um, so Jack um, is a, was raised by his father and his, and his 
stepmother, a complete gringo, uh, which leads to some comedic moments because finally his abuela comes over from Cuba, but Jack's a grown man by the time she gets here. And so Abuela is giving, you know, Jack a crash course in Cuban culture. Um, and so far he gets about a C minus at this point, you know, so, but it actually a lot of people can relate to Jack's struggle to uncover his heritage and his, his family, his, and his culture, because we all kind of wish we knew more, some, something more about where we came from, right? And so, so even if you're not Cuban, you sort of enjoy that journey in Jack's life. So, well, Jack's, um, I, 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 when I, you know, every now and then I tap into this aspect of Jack's character. Um, and so in The Girl in the Glass Box, um, it's his abuela who asks Jack, you've got to help this person. There's a young woman from El Salvador that Abuela has met in somewhere. Um, and um, she is, uh, and this wasn't much in the news when I started writing the book. It's become part of the news. Yeah, now. you were ahead of the, you now, were ahead of the, the curve game. on that one for sure. But she was the victim of gang violence. She was right. the victim of domestic abuse. And um, it was settled law till about 2014 that... If a woman was a victim of domestic violence and gang violence, um, husbands doing horrible things to them, and the state government would not help them, that was grounds for asylum. Because you had to have a certain angle of state and the state right. failing to protect you. To Isn't that why so many are coming to, uh, they are. You know, and trying to seek asylum here? They are. So, um, and, and so... And, but this really wasn't much in the news, but I had researched it. I've done some, in fact, you know, I've done a lot of work for Florida Coalition Against Domestic Violence and so forth. But I, I liked this international angle of mm -hmm. it for this story. And there was this obscure Board of Immigration Appeals decision. I like to do my own research, not necessarily legal research, but in this case, it was, it was legal a little research. Bit, yeah. um, and it was from 2014 in which a woman from Guatemala was abused by her husband. Her husband was a gang member, right? So if you're abused by your husband who's a gang member, you're probably being abused by other gang members as well. Right. And the government would do nothing. Government essentially took the position, he's your husband. You, right. know? you know, it's between you and him. You know, work it out. Right. Uh, and she couldn't work it out. And she really thought this, she was going to die, you know, at, at the hands of uh, these thugs. Um, and uh, so she came to the United States and the Board of Immigration Appeals decided, okay, well, if you're in a situation, that horrible of a situation, and the government throws up its hands and says, eh, you know, it's his prerogative, he's your husband, uh, then that is a failure on the state to protect its citizens and you are entitled to asylum. So I started writing, and so Jack was going to make that argument is the way I started out writing this book. He doesn't know anything about immigration, but, you know, we as lawyers, you know, we, you know, we, we get up on our feet. You're a trial lawyer, you do it, right? And so um, that was the story. Um, and uh, that, without giving away too much of it, I can tell you, though, that this is the first time that's ever happened to me, even though I always do try to be timely. I push back on the... The, the, the handle ripped from the headlines because that's really not what I do. No, it's not. It's, right. it's, it's, I really look for forces that are at work in society right. and try to predict tomorrow's headlines more than anything. If I'm ripping from anything, it's that. Well, I think it's even more so that your interests dovetail. You have a 
sixth sense where you're able to sort of sense what's coming and what's going to happen. And those are your interests as well. But one thing I did not see coming was all of a sudden, in, uh, I literally delivered the script in May 2018. And in June 2018, blew up. Attorney General Jeff Sessions just said, that Board of Immigration Appeals decision is no longer good law. There is no ground for asylum based on domestic violence. Uh, it, that is a family matter. We are not a family law court. And I, after sort of, <laughs> you know, picking myself up the floor and thinking, you know, on two levels. One is, right. how, how can you say that a government that turns its back on women who, right. are, it, it, that's a family matter, uh, uh, but then I also had to deal with the fact that I just delivered a manuscript. <laughs> Where <laughs> that is the basis. That is, that, is that is at the heart of the case. Right. So um, fortunately, it didn't require as much rewriting as I had thought. Um, and I guess it could have been worse. It could have come out, you know, uh, a week before the book was going to hit the book stands. That would have really been uh, a disaster. But, um, I, you know, it's... Did I've all never, of your I, research... Did it did it make you? How did it make you feel about the entire issue? I mean, you then became somebody who could really talk about this issue right. in a very very knowledgeable way, where so many others couldn't. Well, here's and this has sort of been a disappointing thing. Actually, this is the first time on the pre-publication reviews that I've aced all of them. Right? Usually, there's one or two out there that you right. know that that kind of are like so-so, but. All of the pre-publication reviews were, um, I just rocked it. I was like, and the publisher was happy about that. Um, what has disappointed me is that this immigration issue is such a hot-button thing that people immediately Take react sides. to the book based on, you know, whether it, it, whether or not we should build a wall. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and the book is so much deeper than that 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 level of thought. Um, and and I think it also makes you understand that, um, look, asylum has always been a legal basis upon which to come to this country. It's there. That is not an, someone coming here because they are entitled to asylum. They're not criminal. Is, they're not coming here illegally. And know? they're also not criminal right, right, for asking for right. us, for going over the border to ask for asylum. Right, right. It's not a criminal act. It right. shouldn't be. It right. shouldn't be viewed that way. That's really not what the book is really about. I mean, yep. it's really a legal thriller. Yep. I mean, you read it for fun, you read it for enjoyment, it's an entertainment. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I find that you can learn something as well. Yep. Whenever I, I speak in schools, kids, at, and I, sometimes I speak in classrooms, which the subject matter is a little bit too heavy for kids, and they'll ask me what the book's about. Right. And I can honestly say and this is true about every single one of my books, it's about relationships. Right. Um, and in, uh, in The Girl in the Glass Box, a lot of it is the relationship between Jack and his abuela. You yeah. know, and think about a woman who sent her 17-year-old daughter younger. Uh, Jack's mother was 15 when she came to the United States, sent her off to the United States, not knowing if she would ever see her again. And Jack comes to understand that relationship. Well, I've always better. felt the parallel between the Pedro Pan 
experience and the experience of people leaving their countries to try to seek asylum here right. from other countries like El Salvador or Guatemala or wherever is very, very similar in yeah. so many different ways, yeah. particularly these kids that are coming as well. Right. Um, right. Let's make a quick turn a okay. little bit and go back in time a little okay. uh, to around the time when you were uh, you know, a youngster in our literary community yeah. here in Miami. Um, we had a pretty amazing sort of stretch there of people writing like you. I mean, when I think about people who were your peers right, right. writing about, uh, you know, people like Les Standiford and James W. Hall yeah. and yep. uh, Paul Levine yeah. and uh, yeah. Barbara Parker. Yeah. You know, these were all people writing mysteries in yeah. one form or another. How did you feel about that? Was it daunting to be in that kind of world or did you feel like part of a fraternity or sorority of some sort? It's more the latter. Uh, and partly, I'm going to credit Paul Levine for this. Paul was an organizer, right? He would get the group together. I remember those days. You know, and, uh, and somehow when he, he's, Paul now lives in, for, for people who don't know, Je, uh, Paul wrote a, a series with a character named Jake Lassiter. Right. Um, Paul has a real, another one that we were talking about how hard uh, humor is. Paul's books are, are pretty funny, probably the funniest legal thrillers that they you're are. going to, to read. Um, and uh, But Paul was the guy who was like, you know, he recognized that this is really something pretty unique. And he was thinking, you know, kind of modeled it after the, you know, the tropical version of the Algonquin, you know, right? Which is the right. people sitting around right. the table. And we did that. Some there were Carolina Garcia yeah. and so forth. I mean, all so many um, just talented authors. And there's Edna Buchanan. And there seemed to be... Um, for some reason, an insatiable appetite. Part of it was still, if you were going back far enough, part of it was still we were riding the wave of Miami Vice. Um, and that didn't go away with the show. There was Miami was still cool. Uh, well, there, that, after, there were know. real things happening here yeah. that were still Miami Vice, even right. though the, <laughs> even though the show wasn't here. Right, right. Um, and so there was no shortage. And for some reason, no, none of us ever felt like somebody was eating somebody else's lunch. There was, you know, for whatever reason, it, it, it just kind of each fell into their, you know, and if somebody read a, a legal thriller by Paul, well, they would, you know, Paul could only write so many books, they'd pick up a James Grappondo, yeah. you know, because no, and it's I, just, you know. That's the way customers would yeah. do it as well. Yeah. And yeah. the other thing is that nobody, nobody um, was jealous of anyone else's success, at yeah. least outwardly so. Yeah. And everyone yeah. seemed to be friendly with one another yeah. in that sense. Yeah, it was just, it was, a, it, 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 you know, and most of them are still working. Barbara, of course, has passed away, yeah. which was sad. And, um, but uh, I, Jim Hall lives around the corner from yeah. me, but he's spending most of his time up in I, North Carolina. Well, I, I think. think he's in the Keys now. Oh, fact. is he? Okay. And then okay. less turned to nonfiction mostly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, you know, I look at it even a little broader, and I say that it's it actually comes from this strand that may go back to even someone like Charlie Williford. Yeah. You know, with Miami Blues. Right. Right. You know, there's a guy named Douglas Fairbairn who's yep. not really read anymore, and. Yep. And these pulp fiction writers who wrote like, like Elmore Leonard's La Brava, which is yeah. one of the great Miami writer uh, uh, novels. 
So there is that there is that tradition here more yep. than in some other cities. Without a doubt. For people to sort of go down that road. Without a doubt. You know, and you know, Miami liked to claim Dutch yeah. <laughs> Elmore Leonard as its own, you know, yeah. as, as but Michigan will, <laughs> will probably you know shout a little louder claiming him, but um but he did shape it. Laura Shames, yeah. you know, I mean so Lawrence um, Shames, another you, great name. You know, so and then there's a new generation of those guys yeah. coming out, even like Brad Meltzer is yeah. you yeah. know, kind of a bit younger and yes. he's been doing his his mysteries of one Nobody sort or researches another. like Brad. Uh, yeah. I mean the guy and he loves it and it, he'll be the first one to tell you that he loves it, you know, and that, so uh, he um, he and I came up kind of about, about the, the same, same time. time, even though he is maybe it's just because he's, he's definitely didn't just than write him. fiction. He, he's been writing other stuff as well. Yeah, and he's into children's books right. now, and the whole and, and and also you know you go back to the you know a nice group of people. You couldn't meet a nicer guy than the, Brad. One really of the best, terrific guy, terrific guy. Well, the the you know. The good news as a bookseller is people are still buying all of your books and they're reading, they read across whether it's the new Carl Hyacin or the new Tim Dorsey or they come in looking for the new James Grappando. Um, people are still wanting to read that book set in Miami that's going to give them a kind of uh, deep dive into something very different and take them out of their own lives. And I think you do that so beautifully and uh, I'm so happy to call you my friend and happy to say that you know that uh, we're still here to be able to sell your books thank you thank you and I'm I'm even gladder that you serve dessert with your books yes, now here at books and you books. can't see it <laughs> but the last part of what we're going to do is talk a little bit about some of the books we're reading and yep. I thought that you know like any kind of good conversation about books what better thing to do it over than a whole plate of pastries? That, <laughs> They're beautiful. Desserts that we have. We have a flan. We have a cheesecake. We've got some other stuff. What are you reading now? What kind of? What do you find that you're you're reading? Who? What new writers kind of excite you? So there's. Um, I'm not sure he's new, but I'm reading a book. It's his name is Frank Turner Holland. H O L L A N, um, and. Uh, a friend of mine, I, uh, he's now retired, but I, he's from my legal practice days, um, recommended to me, him to me. He's an Al Frank is an Alabama lawyer. Um, and a friend of mine was from Atlanta, so he met him at some Southern Bar Convention or something. But Frank wrote this book that is so powerful. It's called The God File. Um, and it's about um, a guy who um, is so in love with a woman that he takes the rap for a murder she committed. Wow. But un <laughs> he doesn't realize that by taking the rap, he's going to get life without parole. Hmm. And he does. And so he's in prison. Um, and it's first, it's sort of this second thought about, boy, this was really stupid. <laughs> right? <laughs> and then, and, and then um, it is, um, he realizes he's stuck. You know, he has really, he did something for love and he, this is where he's going to spend the rest of his life. And so he sets out on this mission, little things, trying to find evidence that God exists. Um, wow. And it's it's a powerful journey. So it works really. on a so, lot of different levels. Yes. It seems like. um, and I love, I'm loving the book, uh, but it's, a, it's, it's, you so know, it's called the, the God file. It's called file. the God file by 
Frank Turner Holland, H-O-L-L-A-N. Yeah, you should have that book in the store. Yeah, we, really, we may do. Yeah, I'll have to yeah, look and see. Yeah. If we don't, I think I it's will, only in paperback at it this is, point. I will it's, make it's, sure it's not that, a new book, but it's uh, but it's still in paperback. I will yeah. make sure that we yeah. get that in. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, yeah. well, one that I'm reading, I don't know, have you ever heard of Tim Johnston? Yeah. You know him? Yeah. You know, he wrote the book Descent, <laughs> and this is his new one called The Current, uh-huh. which is published by Algonquin. And it's, the, he's a beautiful writer. I mean, beautiful. It's almost like a novel with, with murder. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's much about the writing as it is anything else. And it's about a relationship. Well, it starts out with two girls that are in college, mm-hmm. and uh, they decide to take a road trip because one of the girls has to go see her father. And they're harassed at a, um, at a gas station by these these guys who are kind of harassing them in a small town. And it's winter, and they go down this road to try to get back on the highway, and a, they kind of get run off the road because of the ice. And they both end up in, in the river, and one of them ends up living and one of them ends up dying. Mm-hmm. And the one that's living tries to kind of re-sort of unwind what happened. And that's the current works on a lot of different levels as well. Mm-hmm. And Tim Johnson's a writer that I've recently discovered, even though, you know, I know that this is not his first novel, and it's really, really good. So I recommend that to you and everyone out there. But uh, the biggest recommendation for today is the Girl in the Glass Box. I've been talking to Jim Grappando. And for those of you who've read him, run out and buy this now. And for those of you who are just discovering uh, Jim, you can buy any of his books. And they're all equally wonderful. Uh, Jim, thanks for being on The Literary Life. My really pleasure, Mitchell. It. Anytime. Anytime. Great to see you. Now let's dig into yeah, these descriptions. Yeah, I got my eye on the, uh, <laughs> the tart here. <laughs> all right. I hope you like what you heard and that you'll please share your review on Apple Podcasts. And also give me your feedback at Books and Books on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to my weekly conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Revolver.com. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. Thanks for joining The Literary Life.